You remember those group projects in school? Any of you actually like them? Yeah, we had a couple liars in first service too. It was a... <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I never liked them. I mean, whenever the teacher announced, oh, it's group project time. Yeah, oh, great. I know I've used this line before. It's, you know, when I die, I want, all, I want my pallbearers to be the people I worked on group projects with in school so they can let me down one last time. This is nothing new. It's, it's, it's been going on throughout human history. In fact, saw a meme this week was uh, uh, Julius Caesar. Remember, you know, a guy got, you know, stabbed. You know, apparently this conspiracy to off Caesar had 60 people, six zero people signed on to get rid of Caesar. He had 23 stab wounds. So even in the Roman Empire, not everybody took part and did their piece in a group project. You know, these things, they're supposed to teach teamwork, but they usually, to me, just ended up teaching self-reliance. Now, you know those folks aren't going to do it, so you're going to have to do it. You know, you may not always want to work with others. Other people, they can be hard to work with. You know, they could not be reliable, do silly things, make you mad. Might prefer to go it on our own. You know, those of you out there who are introverts, you know, you're probably really resonating with this. We'd rather do it ourselves than have to deal with a committee. Yeah, you know, you want to know how to make homework worse? Yeah, now you have to have meetings to get the homework done. So yeah, a lot of times it's tempting to just go our own way. But in Christ, that's not how it is to be. We're not going our own way, following Jesus on our own path in a bunch of little individual Christian silos. That's not how it works. We come together. And when we come together, we call it a church. And the church in the city of Corinth had issues. Lots of them. I mean, every church has its issues. Every church has issues. We say, if you find, if you, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, you're going to ruin it. But the Corinthian church, they didn't just have issues, friends. They had subscriptions. They had all kinds of problems in that church. And it shows us that even in the early church, things weren't perfect. Things aren't perfect because our sin nature is always there. It's constantly trying to draw us away from what God wants. And this happens because a church is made up of individual people. Individual people aren't perfect. Matter of fact, we're imperfect, usually gloriously so. So it should come as no surprise when you get a bunch of us together, all we are doing, you know, while we put together those good things about us, we're also putting together the places where we need work. Church is kind of the ultimate group project sometimes. And what that means is we bring together our issues and we incorporate them into the larger body of Christ. We've already heard about this church's problems in 1 Corinthians. I'm sure Mike Pabarkas a couple weeks ago did a great job. Fantastic scholar, great preacher. I'm sure he covered it well. And in that letter, Paul is attempting to get this dysfunctional community of Christ to pull together, to live together as they should. Because living for Jesus doesn't just mean personal behavior. It means that we live out all of these teachings of Christ with others. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. 
Because if you have somebody who's trying to go it alone, eventually that person is not a Christian. You know, you've watched all of the uh, uh, nature documentaries. You know, if you're out there on the Serengeti and you have the one antelope out by himself, you know which one that lion wants. And Satan's in, Satan in the Bible is likened to a lion. Yeah, he picks off the weak, picks off the alone. And that's what happens to us. So we're trying to get along together. The Corinthian church was trying to get along together. Paul wrote him a letter. Some things improved, some things didn't. Enter the second letter to the church in Corinth. At least the second letter that we have. 1 Corinthians focuses on how, to, how we are to be a community of Christ. 2 Corinthians will expand on that theme. It lends some insight into Paul himself. You see, in that first letter, he had to rake the church over the coals a bit. They had it coming. And then after that, he had what was called, what he termed as a painful visit. We don't know exactly what happened. We know Paul went there, and it did not go well. It was a difficult time. And he wrote them a second letter. And that second letter there, that's not 2 Corinthians. We might call that for one and a half Corinthians. We don't have that letter today. That one is lost to antiquity. And then, after that, sec, after that painful visit, after that second letter, there was some change in this church. Things happened. And then we come to 2 Corinthians, or we might call it 3 Corinthians, because, you know, no, third, no second letter. But since it's weird to go from 1 to 3, we just call it 2 Corinthians. We come to this letter where Paul directs the people forward from their past. See, sometimes the hard part is not moving from error to truth. In Christ, that's what we want to be doing. We want to go from our sin to His righteousness, from our error to His truth, from our darkness to His glorious light. And that's not always hard to do because we, can, we know we're a mess. We know we mess up. We know we get things wrong. But sometimes the issue is closing the book on the past, moving forward from there. Well, that's how we were. How do we really let it go? Is everybody still going to look at me as that person? And Paul is telling the church, you know, look, what happened has happened. It stays happened. But that doesn't mean it defines us from here on out. There was sin in the church. Amazing sin. Despicable sin. Sin that had other people looking at the church and be like, wow, that's pretty bad. Sin the church was allowing. But finally there was repentance. But what's supposed to happen now? Paul gets into that in chapter 2. And he, talks, he writes to this church and he starts talking about how we move on. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're, you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. One thing we learn in these letters to Corinth is that a community of Christ has to call out sin. You see, Jesus forgave sin 
He never excused it. Nowadays, it seems like we're interested in excusing sin. But if you excuse sin, you don't forgive it because there's nothing to forgive. Oh, it doesn't matter. No, Jesus said it matters, but you are forgiven. Any community claiming to follow Jesus must be a community that is calling each other to repentance and to righteousness, not one that enables sin. Sometimes we will, dis- we will categorize sin. We've got the serious sins. These are the ones we're going to deal with. Then we've got the little sins, the ones that don't really matter. Who really cares if sister birth is a really horrendous gossip? That doesn't really matter. If you're trying to maintain a harmonious church, oh, yes, it does. Any community claiming to follow Christ needs to constantly be drawing each other to follow him better. And what that means is when we're together, if one of us is engaged in a, in a sin, we need to come alongside the person, put our arm around them, and say, you know, that's not right. You ought to do better. But having done that, once people have come to repentance, it's time to let it be in the past. Done is done. We speak of Christ's forgiveness, we must also recognize that forgiveness ourselves. Because Paul is guiding this church toward forgiveness, saying, don't be angry on my behalf. Don't, be, don't continue to ostracize this person. It's time to put it back together. You see, what he had said in 1 Corinthians was, if this person doesn't repent, if they don't put away that sin, if they don't you know, get past it, you've got to put them out. You can't allow Jesus... His church, his body, to be an object of reproach. You can't have people looking at you and saying, Oh, can't believe they allow that. And Jesus even talked about this. He said, Look, you know, you you go to the person privately. If that doesn't change it, you take some other folks with you, good spiritual people, and you have a sit down, you talk with them. If that still doesn't change it, you take it before the church. And if that doesn't change it, finally the church has to say, you are not welcome here. That's a hard thing for a church to do because, you know, church, we, always, we think church is the place where everyone is welcome. No matter who you are, you're welcome. Well, we welcome sinners. But if someone is committing a sin, is unrepentant about that sin, claims to follow Jesus, but will not put away that sin they may have to be told, I'm sorry, you need to step away. Not, so, not just step away from the platform, not just step away from leadership, but sometimes even step away from joining us on Sunday morning, if it's that bad. The Catholic Church has a process for this. They call it excommunication. We always think, wow, that's pretty bad. But there's a reason to it. If you are caught in a sin that is serious enough, the church will excommunicate you, putting you outside the sacraments. You cannot take the sacraments. The point of it is not to ostracize. The point is for the person to understand how bad it is. We're not throwing people out because we don't want them, because we want them gone. We're setting them out because they need to understand this is serious stuff. You have placed yourself outside the community of God. And if you repent, they bring you back. The Catholic Church does not excommunicate because it wants to kick people out. It excommunicates because it wants to restore. 
And if the people repent, it will welcome them back with open arms. It's a beautiful thing to create restoration. In our, church, in our churches, we kind of have that process. We, don't, we try not to call it excommunicate because, you know, that's really Catholic-y and, you know, we're not sure what to do with it. But it's kind of the same general thing. We don't really want to do it. But sometimes it has to be done. And that had happened in this church. The Corinthian church had taken that guy and said, you're not welcome here. You're too far outside. You, if you're going to continue that sin with you know, just completely unrepentant, you can't come. We're not going to have anything to do with you. And finally, he got the point. He realized this is bad stuff. And he said, I want back. I'm repenting. I'm not going to do this anymore. And the church said, too bad. And Paul's saying, no. <laughs> Having accomplished the goal, you take the win and bring the person back. He said we do that because we're not idiots. We know what Satan wants. You see, a community of Christ has to forgive and to restore. When the person has recognized the sin, when they have repented, it's time to bring them back. Now, I'll admit, you know, sometimes people are like, well, what about this type of sin? Well, yeah, it can get tricky. If somebody's been committing financial sins, you know, maybe somebody got busted for embezzling from their employer or something. And, you know, they had to repent. They had to make restitution. They say, I, 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 that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. That doesn't necessarily mean they get to help count the offering. You know, maybe there's going, they need to be in some other ministry. One without the temptations. So yeah, I'll admit, this is kind of a difficult thing. Restoration doesn't always mean you completely forget about it. It's all gone. Sometimes it means you're welcome back, you're part of us again, but we just don't want to help this reoccur. That exclusion from the community is not meant to be permanent. Upon repentance, it's time to bring them home. And and that is because Satan thrives on isolation. If we exile people, if we keep them on the outside, if there's no restoration at all, what we have just done is painted a bullseye on that person's back for Satan. Because he's going to come along, start whispering in their ear, those Christians, they don't want you. They're all holier than now, bunch of sinners. You know they've sinned too. They're not that perfect. And yet here they are treating you like this. They don't believe any of that stuff about forgiveness. They're spouting. They just, they're not righteous. They're self-righteous. You don't need that Jesus anyway. We know Satan's going to whisper that into their ears. He may have whispered it into your ear at some point. And why? Because he's the father of lies. That's what he does. Don't be surprised when Satan lies to people. It's on his name tag. Lies are us. And he wants people to be easy pickings for his schemes. So where there is genuine repentance, there needs to be genuine forgiveness. Jesus is clear on this. We don't get to play victim forever. Sometimes in our culture, our culture likes playing what I call the victim Olympics. 
The way we play this nowadays, you start tallying up all your victim points. You know, whatever group you're part of, whatever bad experiences you've had in life, you get a victim point. And if you have more victim points than the next guy, you win the discussion. Jesus tells us, yeah, that's not how it works. He tells a parable once upon a time about, says there was this one dude who was owed million, he owed millions of dollars. He's forgiven that. Then he goes and he starts beating up his friend over owing him 20 bucks. He's pointing out each and every one of us has been forgiven. Why should we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Why should we restore? Because we've been restored. Why should we let it go? Because God did. We think we've lost something? He had to send his son to earth to die on a cross. He watched him suffer and die. He's given up a lot for us, friends. I don't think we get to keep nursing it. And that's hard for us to do when our culture says that's exactly what we do. To keep nursing the pain and the hurt and to never let it go. No, Paul's telling the church they have done wrong, but as they turn from that wrong, it's foolishness to create more wrong and leave the person out. It's time to restore because there's always going to be trouble. There's always going to be sin. You know, we're a bunch of different folks in here. We're not always going to get along perfectly. We're, we're going to have issues even against each other. But it's grace and it's forgiveness that keeps a Christian community going. We don't agree on everything in here. I guarantee you I can find things that will have us at each other's throats in less than half an hour. I could probably spark a church fight in five minutes here if I wanted to. I don't want to. I'd rather you didn't. Thanks. Could do without that. Got other things I need to do this week. What keeps us together, what keeps us going, is not that we all agree. It is that we all show grace and forgiveness to each other. And if we refuse to extend it, friends, that will rip the Christian community to pieces. You want to destroy a church? You get a disagreement going and then you withhold your grace. You withhold your forgiveness. You nurse that wrong. And it will not take long... And you will have destroyed a community of the God Most High. Congratulations. Paul's trying to keep that from happening to this church. And he says, it's, you know, we, we need to have grace. We need to forgive. Moving on, we've got to work together. And our togetherness in Christ is shown in an image. It's an image he uses numerous times. He uses it in 1 Corinthians, uses it in 2 Corinthians, uses it in Ephesians. He keeps using a lot of images to show this. He talks about the body, but he also talks about a temple. You ever hear the saying, you're, you know, uh, my body is a temple. I'm going to talk about why that phrase is wrong. You get into chapter 6, and Paul starts discussing the need for righteousness in our behavior. Specifically, he starts talking about how we need to marry believers. Those of you who are single, you belong to Jesus. You need to pay real close attention to who you're with. You need to pay attention and make sure that when you're getting romantically involved, you're getting romantically involved in people who follow Christ. 
We don't want to hear that. I know when I was a teenager, I didn't want to hear that. It was hard enough to get a date to begin with. I didn't need people reducing that available pool. It was small enough, man. It wasn't a dating pool for me. It was a dating puddle. (laughs) Couldn't even splash in it most of the time. But Paul is saying, you need to be cautious with this because the people we link ourselves to will have a strong effect on us. But as he does this, he uses that image of a temple to point out how we are linked together. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. When we start with that statement, my body is a temple, usually we start thinking of it in terms of, oh, I should not eat this, I should not drink this because, you know, my body's a temple and it needs to be in good shape. Or you could take the other tack, my body is a temple and I want God to have a big temple. Nice, big, grand one, not one little shack of a temple. But that statement, my body's a temple, it's a misreading of what Paul points out in his letters. There's a reason for that. It's because English lets us down. English, as a language, does not have a second-person plural that is of any use whatsoever. Not useful. What's second-person plural? Well, if I'm talking to one of you, if I'm talking to Dan, I go, how do I address Dan? I say, you, right? Now, if I want to address more than just Dan in here, how do I do that? You. Same word. We don't have that, that, that slot filled in English. Now, the Southerners have tried to ride to our rescue with this. Southern people always trying to help us, and, you know, God love them. I mean, this could, this could solve us a lot of problems. They brought us that great word, y'all. <laughs> now, if you're in the real deep south, their dialect changes a bit because y'all becomes singular, and all y'all is plural. But, you know, maybe if English would, make, would standardize with y'all as that second person pluralist, it, it would help us with our translation, even though it might sound weird. You know, y'all are the body and the temple of Christ. I mean, yeah, that sounds weird, you know. Just, <laughs> for God so loved you ones, you know, I mean, you know, just, <laughs> you know, what are we doing to the Bible at that point? But... But that would, that, that would help clarify for us because we read that and we think it's talking to us individually. No, it's talking to us together. Because in Greek, they've got second person plural. It's very clear when Paul wrote it. When he was writing, he was saying, y'all are the body of Christ. Y'all are the temple. All y'all are Christ's body and temple in this world. And you ones ought to behave. You know. I like to think Paul would have approved of that. Shaking his head reluctantly, he probably would have. 
Friends, it is not our specific body that is a temple of God. It is the body of Christ, all the believers together that are the temple. You see, we need no special house as we serve Christ. Our building here, it is nothing more than a convenience to us. You know, it's nice to have this. I don't know about you. I love me some air conditioning in the summer. It is nice not asking the question, where are we going to meet this time around? What happens if it rains? You know, it's very, very useful. But there is nothing particularly sacred about this building or this plot of land excepting that the people of God meets here. We could do this in a pavilion at a park. We could do it in a parking lot. We could do it in a shotgun shack. You might stand around saying, is this my beautiful church? Is this my beautiful beautiful preacher. A few of you recognize that one. Nice. <laughs> See, first service didn't even get that one. This temple is not our building, friends. This temple is us together. And as we meet here this morning, friends, right now, down in Chicoloapan de Juarez, on the, outside, on the outskirts of Mexico City, we have brothers and sisters in Christ meeting in a building there. We're the same temple. Already today, I know Ilya has been preaching in Kostroma. Oleg has been preaching in Lutsk in Ukraine. Also serving in this same temple all throughout the Philippines, India, China, Africa, Europe, you name it, wherever the people of God are, there is the temple of God. And we work together because we are together. Paul is drawing our attention to a fundamental truth of who we are in Christ. And who we are is we are linked to each other, not in word but in a fundamental unity based on how we have come together in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ. Christians who choose to exclude exclude themselves or others from service in God, they are missing a tremendous truth that in Christ we are all linked. Sometimes we we, we forget something, that the word ministry does not have a definition that includes the word empire. This is what I do. This is mine. You know, sometimes we, we can treat our little patch in which we serve as, you know, if you watch Finding Nemo and the Seagulls, mine, 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 mine. And you know you're in a selfish church, one that's coming apart at the seams when they're all saying, mine, 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 mine. No, you know you're in a healthy church who understands this concept when they use the word ours. We're not commies. We're Christians. And we work together because we are linked together. How do we move forward in the Christian life? Linked arm in arm with each other. We exist together to worship and to serve Christ. So we also, Paul says, need to be holy. 
We talked about needing to get rid of that sin. Yeah, there's a reason for it. Because if we together are the temple of God, we need to be holy. If you read the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle, later when they built the temple, they put all this effort into sanctifying it. That it is pure and proper for the worship of God. Friends, we don't do that for a building. We put in that effort for us. Because our collective holiness is only achieved through personal holiness. Yes, we are together. We are a unit together. But how do you sanctify everyone together except that each of us individually does our part? You can't expect everybody else to be righteous on your behalf. You can't just sit back there and say, well, I go to Christview. We got this nice old-fashioned church building with all the beautiful wood arches. It's lovely. It doesn't look like some you know, theater thing. It looks like a church. We have pews. The padding's no good on them, but we, at least we got pews. We got a preacher. He preaches the old way, preaches the Bible. Good old-fashioned preaching. Well, fine, but are you following Jesus? And if the answer is no, then none of the rest of that matters. And if the answer is yes, none of the rest of it matters. You're cleaning your house. You've got guests coming over. You're cleaning your house, and you just forget about that bathroom in the basement. You know the one. There's no toilet brush that's going to save that one. The flooring doesn't need a mop. It needs a flamethrower. That room. If you clean all your house but just leave that one, is the house clean? No. No, it's not. Friends, we got to work on that holiness. Each and every one of us together because Christ has saved us together. We will spend eternity together. Our unity in Christ means we belong to a larger whole, the body of Christ, the church. We all belong to him. And what that means is each of us has a part to play when we work together. Now, if you keep going in 2 Corinthians, eventually you get to kind of a weird part of it toward the end of the book because Paul will draw his letter to a close defending himself. And that sounds weird, sounds a little self-centered to us, but there's a reason for it. Ever since the first century, those who are seeking to warp and to distort Christian teachings have always started with Paul. Well, that's, what, that's Pauline Christianity. That's what Paul said. That's not what Jesus said. They want to limit what they see because, well, Jesus didn't talk about that, meaning Paul's irrelevant. Well, that's what they were doing then. They were attacking Paul personally. Now, Paul had worked with this Corinthian church. It wasn't just a church that he knew. This was a church he had started. It was a church he had worked with for years. When they first started, he stayed there for months. He cares for it. He wants them to understand he's not some useless punk. He's indeed an apostle. He really does carry real authority for the church of Christ. He's not just writing to random Christians. He's writing to friends that he has known for years. 
And he's not just defending himself because he wants them to think well of him. He's defending himself because he wants them to understand that he is truly guiding people on the path of righteousness as he follows Christ. It is vital we understand this as well, that Paul's words matter even to us today. He starts listing his resume, his qualifications, his sufferings. He doesn't do it because he wants to. He does it because it's become necessary to silence those who would create trouble in the church. They've been coming in there. People have been stirring up trouble in this church. Paul's nothing. He's a nobody. He's a punk. Paul says, okay, you want to know who I am? He starts talking about what he's done. He starts talking about all of this stuff about himself, not because he's lifting himself up, because he, but because he wants them to listen to his words. You ever deal with somebody that cracked off that magical question, don't you know who I am? You know, whenever somebody asks that question, things are not going well for them at all. You know, because nobody ever asks that question if they're in a good place. They're always asking that question because they think they're way more important than they are. But sometimes you might need to point out that you know what you're talking about. I've got some advanced degrees. I don't put them all on my business card. I don't expect people to call me doctor here because that's just really pretentious in a church. I mean, I'll admit I tried to get people to call me divine master, do, master, divinely masterful Dr. Phil, and that went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> but sometimes if I'm talking to somebody and they're, and, and they're trying to figure out something about the Bible and they don't really know, and they'll be quoting, well, this dude says this, this dude says that. I'm like, well, if you're just going, if, you're, if, you're, if we're going to play the appeal to authority game, yeah, I've got a master's in theology, I've got a doctorate in preaching, I've done 27, almost 27 years of ministry, I've kind of been around the block a couple times. I don't like to throw that down because, you know, it just kind of sounds, well, he loves him some him. But that's kind of what Paul's having to do here. Now, humility is a Christian virtue. We don't want to put ourselves forward, but he has to remind them of the truth because truth is also a Christian virtue. He's not building himself up here. He wants to strengthen the church when he says this in chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul's, 
Paul considers this line of speaking foolishness as he, as he defends himself, as he lists his, his qualifications. He'd rather be doing other things than puffing his chest, but it's necessary because the church made it necessary. As he said, you know, other people are coming in preaching other gospels and you're listening to them. Now, it seems that Paul understood that he was maybe not the best public speaker. I can understand that. There are some guys out there who present great biblical truth, but in the pulpit, they're kind of unpolished. I mean, I'm, I know I'm not even the best. I'll stummer, stammer and trip over certain things. There are a lot of guys who are way more charismatic than I am in the pulpit, you know, that... But the danger is sometimes when we have very charismatic speakers, we can think, oh, they know what they're talking about. There's danger there. And Paul is saying, you know, look, you're listening to these guys who are smooth of tongue but slow of wit. Gifted of mouth. But missing knowledge. And some of them would call themselves super apostles. And he says, super apostles? I guess I'll have this soup. <laughs> super apostle. Yeah. A few of you got it. That's good enough. I'll take that. He's trying to draw their attention to don't listen to people who are bringing this, bringing other, other gospels, other ways of doing things, preaching other spirits. No, he said, you need to listen to me. He says, his, his ministry speaks for itself. He didn't seek to enrich himself. He came to serve. Whenever Paul would go somewhere, he never took offerings from those people. Later on, he'd write to him and say, I want you to support me as I go somewhere else. He would go someplace, and he, Paul made tents. That was kind of his day job, you know, how he supported himself. And even today, sometimes, when we have, uh, we call it bivocational ministry. Basically, it's ministers who can't pay their bills just on the work they do for the church. So they take another job. They are bivocational. We also call that tent making. Sometimes it's necessary. Paul said, now it's not a bad thing to get your salary from the church, but he said, I didn't do it because I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. He would go to a place, make his own way, be supported by others, and then once the church was established, he'd move on to somewhere else and say, okay, now, you, now it's your turn to help support. Paul was kind of a church planter more than anything else. He says, I wasn't making my money off of you. I was serving. He says, I wasn't looking for position. I wanted to preach. His aim is to draw others to Christ. He's not drawing status and wealth to himself like some of these others were. Like these false preachers were. So with this evidence, we ought to take his word seriously. Friends, Paul's in the Bible for a reason. Remember when I said when people start trying to chip away at Christian truths, they start with Paul? Oh, well, Paul didn't, Jesus didn't say that. That was just Paul. Yeah, well, Peter, who was there with Jesus, one of his closest friends here on earth, made a, you know, wrote about Paul, and he said, you know, Paul's writings were Scripture. Even Peter, with whom Paul had disagreed at one point. Paul had to haul Peter up short at one point, and even Peter said, yeah, Paul's one of us. 
Paul is not some Johnny-come-lately who started talking his opinion. He is an authoritative speaker on how to follow Jesus. And he wanted that church to understand it because if they threw his teachings out, it would not be long till they weren't following Jesus at all. And if we start throwing out what Paul says, we're not left with a whole lot of the New Testament. And honestly, we're going to start taking the scissors to what's left before too long as well. Because usually the people that start throwing out Paul, they don't necessarily listen to everything Jesus said. They'll stick with one or two things, then one thing, and then finally it doesn't matter at all. As he writes to this church, this troubled church, we learn that we are part of a larger Christian community. Like it or not, friends, in Christ, we belong to a group. We need to learn to live and to serve like it. We need to be willing to pitch in and willing to work, be willing to work alongside others. Because we're all becoming righteous together. Friends, we're all working on this right alongside each other. There's no shame in admitting, you know, look, I'm not who Jesus wants me to be yet. I'm working on it. Because not one of us is there yet. You look around yourself this morning. Feel free to look around. Don't stare at a neighbor at this point, but just look around. Friends, everybody else around here is trying to become more like Jesus because we're not there yet. From the guy up in front of y'all... The one sitting behind all y'all, every last one of you is trying to become more like Jesus. We are redeemed by and justified by Jesus, and now we are being sanctified as members of Christ's body here on earth, the church. And with the guidance of the apostles, even Paul, we follow Christ together. What Paul is telling this church is what he tells us today, to be a functioning Christian community. That means each of us has to pitch in. We're not just trying to convict of sin, but restore relationships. You see, God doesn't give us his spirit just to convict us of sin, but to draw us back to him. We're not left in woe is me. No, he brings us to praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed us. The story doesn't end with feeling sorry. It ends with being restored. And being restored, we work on the same team because we work for the same Lord with the same hope. Yeah, you look around, you're going to find, even in this room, even in this room, you'll probably be able to lay eyes on somebody that you don't get along with perfectly. Ladies, don't look at your husbands like that right now. But no, it... (sighs) You know, look, we're not always going to get along perfectly. But we are working together. We ought to be overjoyed when others pitch in, when others want to help. We need to find ways for each other to work together. And that means we're going to have to show others the grace that Jesus has shown us. I didn't say it would be easy. I said it's what we're supposed to do. And usually the stuff we're supposed to do isn't all that easy, is it? And doing that, we stay on the right path together. We listen to the right people, those who have the authority of Christ, the apostles, the ones who knew him, the ones who learned from him, the ones who told us what to do. Friends, if it does not conform to the word of God, it is not right. This world will tell us all sorts of things. 
don't ever be afraid to hold it up against the Word of God. And if the Word of God says something different, it isn't the Bible that's wrong. Because the world has been trying to pull Christians away from Jesus ever since he walked on this earth. The world has been trying to draw us away from God ever since the Garden of Eden. And he will not stop until that day when he is finally cast into the pit along with sin and death and sickness and everything else when God remakes it all anew. Until we get there, friends, this isn't an easy path. We got a long way to go, but we're going to walk it together. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We praise you for your truth. We praise you that you have brought us together as your people. Lord, help us to work together. Help us to show each other the grace that you've shown us. Help us to be willing to serve together, to become more like you, that we can be this community that you want us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.